and welcome to How To with the Communications Clinic, our brand new podcast. I'm Louise Duffy and in this podcast we look at how to write a speech. And I can't think of anybody more experienced or well-placed to take us through this topic than the man who crafted thousands of speeches for the President of the United States, Barack Obama. Our guest today has written with Barack Obama since 2007, was Director of Speech Writing in the White House from 2013 to 2017, Mr. Cody Keenan. Cody, you are very welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to be with you. Thank you. Well, look, we have so much to talk to you about and your very considerable practical experience aside, you also teach a university course on speech writing. So you're the man to talk to about how to tailor a speech. But first off, we're off the back of a very unusual democratic convention. So let's talk about Obama's speech for that one. Sure. You know, I'll be honest, going into the convention, I was a little uh, nervous about the convention itself because nobody's ever tried to pull anything off like that before. You know, nobody's ever had to. Um, I actually think it worked better than a regular convention. And I've been to a few. They're just, you know, massive arenas full of people and most people aren't paying attention and they're taking selfies and trying to figure out what parties they are going to go into. And all of it just seems very divorced from what people watching at home are going through. Uh, whereas this was tight and crisp and, you know, in just two hours a night brought all sorts of different voices into the American people, you know, and, and showed people that, you know, for all of our flaws, the Democratic Party is actually the Big Ten party that has, uh, you know, kind of a bigger, more joyous, more optimistic, more diverse story to tell. And so when, you know, when President Obama and I uh, normally I'd say sat down, but, you know, because of COVID, we're not together. Um when we first talked about what he was going to say, you know, we, we thought about, okay, well, how does it, how does this speech place into the art larger arc of the convention? And then you build out from there. How does it place into the larger arc of, you know, this election and America's story? And, and, you know, you want some rhetorical consistency with what you've said before. So how does it fit in, you know, all the speeches I've ever given? And we, we started by saying, okay, well, what's, what's the thing that only I can say, you know, and, and, and that's what a speech should be. It's, it should be something that only you can say. If you deliver a speech that anybody else could give, then you've, you've missed the moment. And so we thought, okay, well, you know, you've been president of the United States. Um, you can talk about the job, you know, you can talk about, you've actually, you're the only person who has sat in the Oval Office with both of these men. You can talk about that. And, you know, there's also, something that very few people in the world have ever grasped. And it's, you know, as president of the United States, you suddenly feel the weight of being the caretaker of this democracy, you know, for four years or eight years, it's basically entrusted to your care, not to screw it up, uh, you know, to make sure that, you know, as you know, we're one of the only, we're probably the only superpower in world history that has for most of our time, not all of it, upheld itself to a set of, you know, international rules and norms and principles and and ideals. And that's what democracy is built on. There aren't guardrails to it. You know, it just depends on how, how willing we are, each of us as citizens to take care of it. And, you know, right now in the United States, we're not doing a great job of it. Uh, At least our our president isn't. And it's, it's a scary thing because if you lose it, you might not get it back. And, you know, but we also thought about, so that's what he wanted to talk about, you know, that democracy itself is at stake. Um, and a lot of people found it unsettling. And you know what, if you did, then good, because it should be, it should unsettle you that we might lose this and you should be inspired to go out and do something about it. And that's why we made sure to include 
you know, an ending as always that's rooted in our history and, and offers some inspiration. And, you know, we, he, he's, he talked about, you know, think of all the Americans throughout our history where, you know, democracy didn't work for them at all. They didn't belong. They had no protections. And instead of just turning away, they said, no, we're going to organize and get together and we're actually going to make this a true democracy like it should be. So let's talk about the actual presence within that room and how that, you know, the empty room, how how do you think the impact was enhanced by that empty room? The lack of the, the usual convention crowd, as you said, it was a different convention. It was a lot more to the point, but the empty room was significant. Yeah, I think it made it so much more powerful. I mean, you know, going into the convention, we've known for months that they would have to give a speech by themselves. Both he and the first lady would have to give a speech by themselves somewhere. Um, so you start thinking about, okay, well, if you're not giving a speech to a live audience, then you dispense with, you know, applause lines and jokes. Pretty simple. Some speakers last week did not dispense with applause lines. And that just comes off as very, very poor when there's nobody applauding. So for us, you know, we viewed it as, it sounds like a cliche, but it's kind of like a fireside chat. It's just me and you, you know, and the stakes are really high. So the first lady, she has always had this incredible delivery to her. She can just kind of walk this razor's edge where her voice is, is quivering, you know, with emotion. And it just, I've been in arenas where she speaks and the crowd just falls silent. President Obama, you know, doesn't get too emotional usually, but, but, so our advanced team, we have one of the best advanced teams in the world. Uh, they went and scouted a bunch of locations in the weeks prior and they found the museum of the American revolution. And, and, you know, we didn't pick it for the name. We picked it because, uh, it had this amazing little setting and it was private property and they would let us use it for the day. Um, but to have the constitution behind them, I was a big sucker for that visually, of course, but, but it's just, you know, it's just him alone talking to 40 million people and, you know, picturing him in the room too, you know, you've got probably three other people in there, you know, one staffer and a, and a sound technician and someone manning the camera and, and they're all masked and otherwise you're all alone. So I think that kind of infused him with the urgency of the situation, but he didn't need any prodding for the gravity of the situation. I mean, he, you could see in his delivery, he, his own voice wavered towards the end and you could tell that he was kind of walking a razor's edge between anger at what we've allowed to happen and, you know, not fear, but I think a kind of a despair over what might happen yeah. if we get this wrong. The urgency to get it right this time. Uh, let's talk about you then and your career. OK, so let's go to, let's say, a State of the Union address, January 2015. You have an empty page in front of you. And you're about to, to pen that address. How do you, like, how in your career do you get there? Talk us through, you know, the, the big moments that brought you to that point. Uh, sure. Um, you know, I, I, I bounced through a few different majors at university, uh, at Northwestern University mm -hmm. in Chicago. <clears throat> Not really sure what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, but I did notice that as I was doing that, I was, I was taking a lot of classes in political science. And I figured, well, that must be, you know, a clue. Um, so I moved to Washington out of graduate school and uh, found pretty quickly that um, nobody cares where you went to university and it doesn't matter if you've seen every episode of the West Wing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't translate. No, pe people want to know what you can do. Yeah. And there wasn't really much I could do. You know, I had a degree in political science, but it's all theoretical. So, you know, how does that equip me to actually do anything? Um, 
So it took me a few months to actually find a job. It is a tough place to break into. And, you know, I ultimately, uh, I didn't know anybody there either. So I'm just kind of pounding the pavement on my own and, and you know, Googling. Uh, and I find uh, an opening for an internship in Ted Kennedy's office, Senator Kennedy. Um, and I was lucky enough to get that. And, you know, it was, it was literally the, the, the ground floor. It was walking the senator's dogs and running memos around and uh, read, reading and routing mail. Uh, but over the years, I kind of slowly moved up and uh, I'd never thought about speech writing. I was, I was working on policy and my boss poked his head around the corner. This was uh, the chief of staff and said, hey, can you write a speech? Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think he was asking, you know, if I could, but he just he didn't have the time to do it. So he's, I think he was mostly just asking if I could do it for him. And so I lied and I said yes. Uh, and I stayed up all night long, kind of panicking my way through a speech for the senator. And the first time you see somebody deliver something you've written, it's electric. Uh, and I had the bug pretty quickly. You make that sound like you almost, it was discovery, like an accidental discovery that you could write and you have this incredible talent. But in your childhood, at what was your childhood steeped in words very early on? What did you read? Yeah, I, I think I, I think what makes you the best possible speechwriter is if you're the best possible reader. Um, and I was just an incredible bookworm as a kid. I read constantly, you know, and I was fortunate that we had a wonderful public library uh, and great public schools where I grew up. And I'd spend my summers at the public library trying to win the competition for, you know, the kids who read the most books. Um, I would just devour everything. And I think that makes you a better writer without even realizing it or trying it. And it also gives you a sense of empathy, which is something any good speechwriter needs, you know, to be able to uh, have your world expanded by reading about people who aren't like you and don't come from backgrounds or countries like yours. Um, that prepares you to be a speechwriter, whether you know it or not. And you mentioned, you know, that buzz of seeing somebody deliver something that you have created. I would have to imagine that a career like that requires a particular kind of personality. I would imagine you need to be devoid of ego to create something so brilliant and let somebody else take it away. Um, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. It's true. It, it is. It is tough to uh, have. It's tough to be edited. I mean, over time, you come to realize that it's not a criticism of you and your work per se, but it's more like you know. Uh, the president told me once when I, you know, I, he sent me back a speech where it was four pages long, and he had edited the first two pages and just crossed out the last two pages with just a big line and rewrote them by hand, and that was. I felt terrible about it, not because, you know, my work was something that I thought he should say, but because he had to work on it and I felt awful about it. And then, you know, he reminded me that he's a writer. He's always been a writer. Um, and he put his hand on my shoulder and said, brother, don't apologize. You gave me what I needed to work with. You know, you gave me the scaffolding for this. Uh, and when you've been thinking about these issues for, you know, 55 years, you'll know what you want to say, too. Um, which was very generous of him, but it, but it, it hammers home the point that at least with him, it, you know, there, there's a whole spectrum of relationships between speechwriters and their bosses. But with him, he just wanted a draft that he could work with because he really did work on speeches every night. I mean, he still does with the convention speech, uh, last week, he was, you know, up editing at one night until three in the morning. Um, cause that's just when he likes to work. And, you know, he polished up three or four more drafts over the course of the day. I had the convention staff begging me over email to send in the speech. And I was like, he's still playing with it. You know, by the end, he's probably making 
he's changed. I think by the end he changed two words in the last version, but um, he's precise with it because he views a speech as an opportunity to make an argument and to make it well thought out and well structured and well supported. And if he has the time, he will be precise down to the syllable. You know, there have been times when he said this sentence needs an extra syllable, find one somewhere. Um, so writing for him has always been a wonderful struggle. Yeah. But then, I mean, he's a wonderful speaker too. So I would imagine that makes the process a lot more straightforward as a speechwriter. But ha has it always landed the way you hoped or did you ever feel that it, it didn't translate the way you envisaged or is your relationship so tight that this is all worked out before he takes the stage? It's, I mean, his delivery certainly helps. I, uh, I've seen people write for people who can't deliver a speech and it's just a struggle. I mean, he can save almost anything just with his delivery. There, I can't think of any times where it didn't work out. And that's, that's less, you know, a tribute to me and him, but also at least when we were in the White House, you know, you have to send a draft around, I think to about 70 people before it reaches him. Um, and we had a relationship that was close enough that I could email him or go into the Oval Office when I needed help. But before a speech gets to him, it needs to go through the policy staff, fact checkers, lawyers, communications teams. Um, that's the hardest and most annoying part of the process when a whole bunch of people are suggesting edits. And, you know, if they're good, you take them. Uh, and if they're not, you have to push back and explain why. Um, so by the time it got to him, you know, it would be almost impossible for something to be factually wrong or completely tone deaf. Um, I'm sure we made some mistakes. They're just not popping into mind right now. But, you know, our, our fact checkers were so good. Our fact checkers were so good that I actually married one of them. I know you did. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> love in the White. Well, that is like an episode of West Wing then, isn't it? <laughs> Meeting and falling in love in the, White, in the White House. So tell me, how you mentioned 70 people that might have to read this speech before it gets to his office and in front of him. So how do you make that collaborative process work cohesively with so many people involved? Like you say, it has to be a headache at times. And even, you know, Peggy Noonan has commented previously about the interference of officials. I, it, it's tough, obviously. Yeah, it was the worst. Uh, and, and I love most of these people dearly. Um, you know, it's it, there are all sorts of different fights. They're, the policy ones were always the toughest. And you have to remind yourself that, you know, these people are experts in this given area that the president doesn't get to speak on often. So they want to make sure it's explained well and fully. But a lot of times you have to push back and remind people, look, this is, this is a speech to an audience that might not be well versed in this. So we're going to try to make it conversational and colloquial. And that doesn't mean dumb. It just means accessible because you want people to remember what they heard and then go tell their friends about it. Um, so a lot of times uh, the, the worst fights were with policy people, especially uh, inter the international economic policy people who jargon it becomes your biggest enemy. You know, I'll, I'll say, I want you to say that sentence out loud and see how crazy it sounds. Um, so those would be some pretty epic fights. But the president always ended up siding with us anyways, because he's also a writer. So uh, if we really had to get him involved, we would and we would we would usually win those fights. But, um, you know, there'd always be a lot of scorched earth around. Yeah. Well, then let's go back to the process then before you get to that collaboration that is required, that is necessary. Go back to that empty page. So it, it, there's a big one around the corner, like the State of the Union. How does that feel when you have a blank screen or an empty page in front of you and you know this has to be good? Everything is riding on this. I would love to tell you that uh, it's it's hopeful and exciting to have a blank page that you can create something on. It sucks. It's the worst. Um I had, I had this habit of, you know, when I was finally ready to write, I'd open up a, 
the blank page and I'd put the, the title, the header on the top and the date and type out state of the union address. And then I'd go procrastinate for a couple hours. You know, I'd be like, all right, the file is open. You know, what can I look at on the internet to pass the time? Um, it's just, you just have to start writing and, and everybody's got uh, their own, you know, method to the mm-hmm. madness. Um, What's your method? I, I don't think mine is particularly good, but, but what I, what works for me is I will just do I tons and tons of research on the front end. I mean, that's what makes any good speech. I'll try to, I'll, I'll keep reading widely and find interesting stories and facts and figures and anecdotes to bring the speech to life. And, you know, before I start writing, I'll have an outline that's, that's about twice as long as the speech should actually be. And that's sort of a, uh, procrastination tool too. I mean, finally you have to get to, my wife will tell me, she's like, you have to start writing now or you're going to run out of time. Then I'll actually just, I'll try to talk out the speech with somebody verbally, uh, as quickly as I can and just say, all right, here's the speech and just give it verbally. And you can kind of feel it forming structure in your head. Uh, you can identify the flaws with it. And then once you, once I have it, I'll actually sit down and try to write it as quickly as possible. Even if it's, ugly and messy and, you know, has terrible word choice and it's just very basic, but then you've got it on paper. And if the structure looks right, uh, you can spend the next 90% of the time on it, just editing, um, and revising and polishing it up. And how important for you, I think, I think things changed when you took over and the stories became a little bit more vivid in Barack Obama's speeches. How important is storytelling to you in creating a speech for the audience's benefit? I think it's critical. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people often ask, how do you how do you speak to a hostile audience or to an audience that doesn't agree with you? Um, and that's how you try to find something that you can connect with them on some sort of universal value or truth or story, because um, people respond to stories. You know, it, 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 anything that kind of grabs you at a gut emotional level uh, is is a victory in a speech. And I, you know, I've always loved the the ending of a speech, the back third or quarter is really where you can grab the audience and move them to action. I mean, you, you've got every speech is an opportunity and, and an audience is an opportunity. And it just nothing makes me sadder than when I see somebody blow that opportunity by not asking their audience for anything, you know, not trying to get them to move to a cause or an ideal. And if you can inspire them right before the end and ask something of them, uh, then the speech has gone pretty well. You know, grab them from the start and and never let go and i think one of the things that that you know getting to write for president of the united states teaches you is that you're always talking to everybody there is no such thing as a private audience um whatever speech you give it, it, it's broadcast around the world and it's on the internet and everyone can see it so you have experience talking to everyone mm-hmm. so let's talk then about writing in in someone else's voice you know how how well do you need to know somebody to write the way that they might talk? Uh, intimately. And, and, and it takes a while. I mean, I think one of the most important things for any young speechwriter who uh, gets that first job is to demand some face time with the boss. And that can be tough because you might have, uh, you know, you might be young. Um, some of my students I've helped place in political jobs. And, you know, one of them was a speechwriter for a governor when she was 22 years old. Um and that can be a, a tough thing for people to take you seriously. You might have a, you know, kind of a jealous turf guarding communications director, or chief of staff in the way who doesn't want you to have unfettered access to the boss. But it's less for the speechwriter's benefit than it is for the speaker's benefit to know that what he or she wants to say has been adequately 
captured by their writer and to give the writer a chance to understand it's not just what they've said before or their voice, but uh, and not just what they want to say, but why they want to say it. You know, what makes this person tick? What's their worldview? And you can't really capture that second hand or third hand. Um, you know, I'll just, but as an intern, did you try? Did you have to do that? You know, uh, you know, dealing with the governor is one thing, uh, dealing with the president of the United States another. So as an intern, did you have to, you know, like study YouTube videos or you read his book, I assume, you know, like how do you get to know him when the FaceTime isn't as uh, forthcoming? Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, I, I didn't meet him for the first year and a half that I worked for him. Um, so a couple things. I mean, most of that was because it was on the campaign. So he was never... Uh, at headquarters in Chicago, he was out campaigning as he should be. I, the first time I met him was in the Oval Office. I think the second day we were in there in January, 2009, uh, which is terrifying, but, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, what I did was when I got the internship on the campaign, uh, I drove out to Chicago. Um, I was in grad school in Boston at the time and I listened to both of his books on tape, um, to, you know, not just get his story down, but get his voice and his cadence down watched every YouTube I could of a speech of his, which fortunately at that time wasn't too many in 2007. Um, but uh, a lot of it was mimicry because I, I, I hadn't, I didn't know him. I hadn't really met him, but I, you know, I had someone in John Favreau as the chief speechwriter who did, who'd spent a few years with him in the Senate and the chief speechwriter does most of the editing. Um, so I had John as a mentor and, you know, for that first year and a half, uh, he really improved my speechwriting. And then even in the white house, you know, as the most junior speechwriter on the totem pole, I rarely saw the president in, in person in the first two years, maybe, maybe once a month, if that. Um, but by 2011, I was meeting with him frequently. And then that's where it really kind of took off. And I think I think it was John Favreau that said, at a certain point, you begin to think in his voice. It's almost like when you live in a foreign country, you start to think in the foreign language, and then you know you're, you're at home. Like, did that happen to you? Did you begin to think in his voice when you're working on your 1000th speech? Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, I, the, the, I've had friends who tell me, they're like, all right, you're talking like him now, stop it. Um, and the dreams thing is true. I, I lived I lived in Spain for a while in college, and the first time I had a dream in Spanish, there's, it's just like, whoa, okay. Uh, it's sort of like that too. Yeah, but now they're just anxiety dreams about him not liking a speech. <laughs> well, listen, well, you respect him so much, that much is evident, and you worked so closely with him for so long. How Could you write for somebody whose views you can't respect? No. I mean, if I had to, I could. Like if, you know, if somebody put a gun to my head, sure. Um, but it, it just, it doesn't make for a good speech. Like I, I could write for anybody. That doesn't mean it'll be a great collaboration. Um, I, I think it really does help and make a difference when you drive with a person, when you share the same worldview. Um, and I could see how someone would say, well, that's, you know, you can't, expand your moral horizons? Well, sure I could. But I, you know, if you really care about something, it comes through in the writing. Um, fakery comes through too. So I just was fortunate uh, in so many ways, you know, one that I agreed with him on, on the big stuff, uh, two, that he actually cared about the craft and spent time on it and, you know, took the time to walk us through his edits. Um, and three, that he's just so darn good at delivery. I mean, I, I, I've been spoiled in a lot of ways as a speechwriter. 
His delivery is is impeccable always. He's an incredible speaker. But, you know, the pacing and the pauses, I think the power of silence is, is a very important communication tool that speakers don't often utilize because of the pressure of the performance or the camera or the audience or whatever, whatever it might be. He doesn't have those worries. But for you as a speechwriter, do you build that element of pausing and thinking and creating space into your speech? Or is this just inherent in his performance? That's such a good question. Um, nobody's ever asked me that before. And I actually have a great story about it. Um, <clears throat> you do build that into it. Uh, if, if you're writing well, uh, there have been plenty of times where, you know, if it was a wonky policy speech or something, you're just trying to cram a bunch of stuff in there. You forget about, you know, the emotional punch of silence. So uh, you mentioned the 2015 State of the Union address earlier. I actually, um, I usually tried to give him a draft of that about a week in advance. Um, which is rare. Typically, we'd give him a draft the night before, but for for a big speech, a, a long one, one that he cares about, one that'll get national attention, I'd, I'd aim for about a week. Um, and the city union dress is long. It's an awful speech. It's it's the speech that you know every speechwriter dreams of writing, and then once you've done it, you never want to do it again because you're just you're trying to pack seventy policy ideas into an hour without boring everyone to death or making it a laundry list, and, and you often fail. Um, and every policy person in the world is begging you to put their idea in there. And it just, it becomes a a giant Christmas tree, but we still tried to tell a story with each one. And I think we did that better than most. Um, and so I, I give him this draft about a week out and I hear nothing for a day and I'm starting to panic. And so I get a call from his assistant. Uh, this is now, I think Tuesday, I think this is Wednesday before the speech, which is a Tuesday. And she says, Hey, the boss wants to see, can you come up here? I'm like, okay. You know, this is the moment where you find out uh, whether he likes it or not, whether you're going to be spending your next 24 hours rewriting the entire thing or if it's ready to kind of blast around to people and and deal with their policy incoming fire. So I walk up there and I don't see him in the Oval Office. She goes, he's in his dining room. I'm like, well, well, that's weird. Okay. so I go back there and he's eating lunch and he goes, hey, sit down. (laughs) And I'm thinking, oh, no, he goes, this is really good. I was like, oh, great. He goes, I think this is the best shape we've ever been in. I could deliver this right now. Um, and But my first thought is, I've heard this before. There's no way he wants to deliver this right now. It's, it's, we have a week so we can make it better and he's going to want to do that. And he goes, but here's the thing. It's just the entire speech is at a 10. Like every word matters. Every sentence matters. There is no wasted space. And I'm like, that's great. And he goes, <clears throat> you listen to jazz. And I tell, I, you know, I want to sound cool, but I just tell the truth. I'm like, not really. You know, I I had like, I think I had like two albums on my iPod for, you know, pre my wife, if girls ever came over, but, uh, (laughs) I'll have to ask you what they are after is, but keep going. (laughs) So he goes, um, he goes, well, do you, you know what they say about jazz? And I'm like, obviously not. Uh, or no, he asked about Miles Davis. He said, you know what they say about Miles Davis? And I said, obviously not. He says, it's the notes you don't play. And I, so I'm just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and he says, it's the silences in jazz, you know, just as important as the notes you play are the silent spots where you, where you listen, that they convey emotion. The silence has just as much meaning as a note. And I'm like, all right, I kind of see where you're going here. He's like, so the entire speech is, you know, at a 10. I need some segments that are at five, seven, you know, maybe even a three where you bring the audience down and, and they pauses and, you know, kind of an emotional 
crescendo, all that. Um, and it's there. But so what I want you to do is go home tonight. Uh, I don't want you to work on the speech. I want you to pour yourself a drink, listen to Miles Davis and find me some silences. Uh, so I did. And it was cool. And it worked really well. And I've never forgotten that lesson. That's amazing. So have you worked that into the rest of your speeches? Like That's almost like creating music, you know, to, to, to give it that time and to give it that beat. Is this is this how you went forward then with him? Yeah, it, be, it becomes muscle memory. It becomes habit. It becomes inherent. Um, I'd love to say that every time I sit down to write a speech, I immediately recall all the lessons I've ever learned and, and put them down on paper. But I don't. I mean, I screw up all the time. You know, I'll write a draft and be like, this is too policy heavy. This doesn't make the right argument. The structure doesn't work. Damn it. Um, you know, yeah, but you still, you still pour it scotch and listen to Miles Davis when you're, when you're writing every speech now, right? I'm into Coltrane now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so look, let's talk then about some, some different speeches, you know, and some of Barack Obama's best speeches have been those very emotive speeches, speeches after terrible times for America, like the shooting at Sandy Hook or Tucson, you know, how does, how does that process differ? Obviously you've less lead time, but also I would assume it's quite perilous to to eulogize victims, but also unite the nation that you're talking to at the same time. Um, you know, for eulogies, it's it's not the kind of thing you think about when you first get to the White House and you're kind of wide eyed and excited. You're thinking about writing, you know, moonshot speeches and, uh, you know, maybe commencement addresses and hopeful, uplifting things that live. And, you know, what I never realized was how many speeches he'd have to give about death. Um, and so many of them from guns. Uh, it's this awful quirk of America. And so we had to give a lot of those. And um, there, like you said, there typically wasn't a lot of lead time, you know, for, I think for Sandy Hook, um, we had, I want to say two days. Uh, I think the shooting was a Friday and the eulogy was a Sunday. And Tucson was a couple days longer, but it's usually not very long. Um, so, you know, one thing with a eulogy is uh, first and foremost, you want to remember um, the people we've lost. But, you know, a eulogy is an opportunity too, to, to instruct your audience, and in this case, the American people, as to what are our obligations and responsibilities now that this person is gone or that these people are gone? You know, what do we do in their absence? Um, and, you know, we took a slightly different tone with each. I mean, Tucson was, uh, it wasn't the first mass shooting he had to deal with. It was, you know, it was obviously one that involved a sitting congresswoman that had, so it gave it extra weight. But um, where we really signaled that uh, it was time to do something about the NRA and gun violence was after Newtown. I mean, how can you not when there are 20 children who've been murdered in their classroom? Um and he, you know, the speech happened after the reelect, but before um, his second inauguration. And, you know, he decided um, the first thing coming out of the gates in our second term, we've got to we've got to toss out our agenda and we've got to do something about guns or uh, we have failed. And, you know, to not do that would, would signify a complete lack of moral leadership. Um, and we knew it would be an uphill battle with a Senate completely or Republican Senate completely opposed to any action on guns whatsoever. And ultimately it was background checks failed in the Senate three months later, um, even as the parents of the children were watching from the galleries. And I, you know, 
that was that was the most cynical I've ever been in Washington. The president said that was his worst day in the White House, too. Uh, well, the shooting was the worst day, but the most cynical he'd ever felt was when the Senate, you know, and it's hard to explain to people in other countries sometimes, but only in the United States Senate, where you have 100 votes, can something fail with 54 votes. Um, it's a tough thing to explain. And, you know, just asking people to, you know, wait three days and get checked out before buying an assault weapon was something that 90% of Americans supported and we couldn't get it through the Senate. Um, but back to those speeches, that's, that's what he tried to do. You know, after Charleston, it was, uh, you know, he, he seized on the concept of grace and, you know, using the lyrics of amazing grace, surely, you know, we were blind, but we can now see that, you know, gun violence causes unique mayhem in this country and, uh, that African-Americans are treated differently and that, you know, the Confederate flag, uh, is a, is a symbol of pain and oppression to millions of Americans. Surely we can see those things now. Um, so that's, that's how he approached eulogies. Do you personally feel the pressure then, you know, to to make those changes to, or and, and indeed the the terrible disappointment when it the, the changes don't come through despite your best efforts? Yeah, it's crushing. I, yeah. I think you know anyone who believes in the power of good government and uh, democracy and you know um, self government has to be devastated by those things. You know, to to try so hard and fall short when you know your cause is just, uh, is just crushing. And we felt that, you know, every time something failed, whether it was a climate bill or uh, what else, you know, the healthcare bill you don't necessarily need or want as is or, or whatever, um, you feel that deeply. And, you know, I, I've never really loved the game of politics. Um, I liked making people's lives better. You know, the, the best days in the White House were, the day we passed health reform and the day the Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of marriage equality uh, because you see people happy and joyous and, and something happened that's going to make a positive difference in people's lives. And if you're not concerned about that, then, you know, what the hell are you in government for? Mm, it's progress. And it's so it's so important to see. Uh, talk to me then to tell me, Cody, what do you think the future is for speech writing? Because now. 140 character tweet or whatever it is now can create waves as big as a, a 30 minute speech. So where are we at? What's the future looking like for speech writing? You know, I, I'm still pretty bullish on it. I don't think Twitter has changed it that much. Um, you know, I have a love hate relationship with Twitter, like anybody else. I just think it's terrible for our attention spans and, you know, there's no room for nuance or, you know, rational reasoned introspection. Um, you know, in a small way, what always drove me nuts was uh, when, you know, reporters would tweet during a big speech of the president's and or people would complain that he hasn't mentioned something yet when I know it's coming up in three paragraphs. I would just scream at my monitor, like, just be patient. Uh, but you can I mean, you can get a lot of attention for a single tweet, but it, it's just it's ethereal. It, it, it lives nowhere. It just floats away after that. It makes no difference. You know, pe people will ask. Uh, and in case you don't want to, I mean, pe people will ask, well, doesn't, isn't Donald Trump effective because he's made the conversation all about him all the time. Um, I'd argue he's effective at making the conversation all about him, but what has it actually done for him? I mean, he's, he's never pulled above 50%. He's the least popular president in modern history and it's just getting worse. He has, you know, no major achievements to his name beyond a tax cut for rich people that he had, you know, a Congress to back him up for. Um, 
So I don't see where the success is. I mean, he can stand up and, and just be resentment for two hours and grievance, but none of those are going to live anywhere. None of them will be studied or, you know, carved into a wall or, you know, inspire people to action either. And it's just an incredible and damaging four years of missed opportunities for America. Mm. So look, I, I'm so grateful for your time today. And I want to just ask you one question before you go. For people listening to this who are about to write a speech or who need guidance, over the history of speech writing, who do you regard as the greats? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a top three if you want. Well, I, you know, I always, my favorites have always been Bobby Kennedy. Um, <clears throat> you know, even though... JFK was kind of the soaring president uh, and, you know, his his speech at Rice University uh, promising that America would go to the moon within a decade is my all time favorite political speech. Um, and I, I worked for Ted Kennedy, their youngest brother, who will, you know, sadly never be known as a great speech maker. Um, but there was something about Bobby's that uh, did what, you know, I, I, I try to do. Um, I wouldn't dare you know, compare myself to him, but, uh, and he, he had a moral urgency to his speeches and a deep sense of moral conscience. Um, and he would try to grab the audience by their gut and say, you know, this is wrong. Um, and that's something I try to do in speeches too, as much as I can get away with. I mean, you know, a speech should have a good sense of, you should have a moral compass to it. Sure. But, but a moral urgency to it too. I mean, you need to make people care. So, I'd put Bobby as, as number one for me. Cody Keenan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, such a pleasure. And thank you to you for listening. And we're going to be back very soon with another how-to. Thank you, Cody. And we'll chat to you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.